Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Riverside hosts the first race of the 1965 NASCAR season. Junior Johnson takes his 65 Ford through turn nine to complete his qualification run. Johnson's lap is the fastest and puts him on the pole at an average speed of over 102 miles per hour. Foyt gets settled in for the start. Johnson leads with Parnelli Jones in hot pursuit. Parnelli goes wide in turn nine and takes the lead. Nelly is first, Junior second, and Ned Jarrett is third. Pre-race favorite Dan Gurney is running eighth. Sam Stanley spins in turn five. Marvin Patch number 21 and Ned Jarrett number 11 race for third. Parnelli has a lock on first. Gene Davis takes a little different line. Doug Cooper spins in turn five. Billy Cantrell thrills the crowd. The caution flag bunches the cars up for a restart. Jones leads Johnson, Jarrett, Lorenzen, and Panch. Dan Gurney in number 121 is challenging Jones for the lead. It's important to be ready for anything. Bob Connor spins in turn six. AJ gets the word from his crew that Parnelli is out. Gurney is the new leader. Voigt is second in double zero. Ned Jarrett slams the wall in turn six and is forced to pit for repairs. Trouble on the 167th lap. Foyt has no brakes and ducks to the inside to avoid Junior Johnson. Foyt goes into the dirt at over 100 miles per hour and flips end over end for several hundred feet. A.J. was lucky to live through this one. He was hospitalized in serious condition and was out of action for months. After the restart, Dan builds a tremendous lead. It looks like Gurney is going to make it three in a row. Dan takes the checker and wins the Motor Trend 500. This is Ed Pink, legendary engine builder. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Send the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Ok, 
Hey, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan, talk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our 400 and or 500, all right, a whole bunch of shows, <laughs> uh, check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars, where they are all archived and podcasts. So, good evening, Tommy. Good evening, Robert. Yes, you're still there. Clear as can be behind that uh, COVID-21. Safety glass. Safety glass. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, well, we got a great show for you tonight. We're actually doing part two of part one that we did last week. We had some uh, really cool engineers on from, uh, or a engineer and the uh, archivist from Ford Motor Company on our show last year. So, or last week, rather. And uh, so it was such a fascinating show. We actually got off on a tangent a little bit, so I didn't get a chance to ask all the questions. But it was pretty interesting because the gentleman on board um, was uh, involved in uh, Ford, let's say, engine engineering in the early days. Uh, and then he worked on the GT40 program. The, uh, he is coming back and uh, making a return visit here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And we also have the pleasure of having on another gentleman who is also a, a former engineer with, uh, I won't say Ford directly, indirectly, but he was with CarCraft Engineering. Now, those of you that are familiar with the term CarCraft, CarCraft was kind of like uh, Ford's special vehicles operation. They had, you know, kind of on the side, and uh, they did a lot of experimental stuff because um, they were up in Dearborn, or actually were just outside of Dearborn. They were in Brighton, Michigan, and uh, they were kind of involved in the early days of, uh, I think right around 65, 66, they got involved with Ford Racing. And uh, but they're probably best known for as the um, facility that built the mighty, the holy grail of Mustangs, the Boss 429. And uh, so I'm delighted to have this gentleman on with us this evening. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to mess around here. I'm going to get these guys on the show. So we're going to go to a, uh, we're going to fire up that turntable. Since it's all about racing, that was a little thing on Riverside. It's funny because I was watching all those cars. The top 10 cars were all Fords. And uh, with some great drivers, Padilla Jones, Dan Gurney, uh, you know, Marvin Ponch, who's actually from this area here, I think, Tampa, and um, Ned Jarrett and uh, Junior Johnson, you know, with the famous Banana uh, Galaxy. And uh, uh, the Mercury's, obviously. And um, Steve, uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, Bill Straup was the guy on the West Coast that was like the home and the Moody on the East Coast. But nothing compared to home and the Moody because they just had it. I mean, they supplied everybody. Home and the Moody, you know, we've had Lee on our show a few times. And uh, so home and the Moody is kind of like the the deal. And uh, and Carol Shelby, obviously, we can't leave him out, too, though, because, you know, those of us that are Shelby fans, too. So you had Straup, Shelby, uh, and Carcraft. And you had, um, well, they didn't really field any cars. They were kind of like an engineering team, but, uh, and then home and Woody. But anyway, without further ado, let's go uh, fire up that stereo. This is uh, a little Elvis. Now, one of my favorite movies, Spin Out, and there was a Cobra in that movie. Hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that doll. We'll be right back. Buddy, let me warn you. You're on a one-way street. You'll crowd your clothes, spin your wheels, then you're gonna know how it feels to spin out. Yeah. Spin out. Better watch those curves, never let her steer. If she can shake your nerves, boy, then she can strip your gears. She'll get your heart. And go 
going fast Then she'll let you run out of gas so Spread out Spread out Really score Never saw parts move or like that before To flag you down That's a goal Scoot before you lose control Let's spread out Spread out Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Come enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at DunedinBrewery.com. Okay, so we're back. We're tuned into. Uh, <laughs> you can throw it in, Tommy. Uh, we're tuned into uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We're back from the break. Man, I was asleep at the wheel there for a second. You know what they say in racing? You snooze, you lose. However, Tommy got that queued up. He's working on it. Anyway, okay, we're back, uh, and uh, it's uh, time for part two. I want to uh, reintroduce Mose Nolan. He was an engineer with Ford Motor Company back in the day. You got it? Go ahead. Has a better idea. Well, we almost had it there, but basically, that's a little commercial from back in the day, which it was Ford had a better idea. Anyway, I want to reintroduce uh, Mose Nolan, and I also want to introduce uh, Don Eichstätt, and uh, he was an engineer with Carcraft. So, uh, welcome, gentlemen, and how are you guys doing this evening? Good evening, Robert. How are you, Don? You there? Uh, here's I'm here, Don, and Mose and Bob. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don, why don't you go ahead and give us a little uh, short uh, intro on yourself a little bit. About me, okay. Yeah, well, about you. Uh, I uh, graduated, I went to Kettering uh, General Motors Institute and was co oping with Chevrolet and uh, driving a 56 Corvette, so I was running events and winning trophies and... Uh, I got started, uh, I ended up racing four different cars in the early 60s, and uh, as I say, I had a degree from General Motors Institute, and one of my uh, guys that worked on my Corvair crew had an opportunity to go to work at CarCraft, and he says, hey, they got a 
opening up here uh, the next year, and, and you're interested. And I said, yeah. And so I went in, and I re- interviewed with Roy Lund, and they hired me to work at CarCraft because it was a racing, basically a racing high-performance experimental shop facility. Uh, I'd been working on cars since I was about 12 years old. I grew up in my father's Chevrolet dealership and uh, working on cars all those years, so I was uh, pretty well experienced in the whole side of car engineering, and that's what General Motors taught you. We worked in all different parts of Chevrolet engineering, design, test lab, proving grounds, uh, the, the factory, and all that stuff. And so, and I was working on my own cars, so that gave me a good background to uh, to fit into the car craft uh, situation, basically. Tell us a little bit about that. Now, you, uh, I know you were at, um, at, at General Motors there for a while, but you had mentioned, you had touched on that you kind of worked in different areas. So how did it work back in the day? So if you were hired on at General Motors, were you hired on, you know, let's say, as a job-specific, or did they want you to kind of be, did they want their engineers, their staff, their team, to be kind of well-rounded, and they intentionally moved you guys around so you had a better feel for what was going on? Well, it was a little bit different. I was hired as a student. Oh, okay. And so to get into General Motors at that time, you had to have a sponsor. So I got sponsored by Chevrolet Engineering. And moving around the uh, the different departments was part of the educational program. It's a cooperative program. You go to school for a month and you go to work for a month so that you're applying your education at the same time you have practical experience when you're looking at the books so that... Uh, the reason that's how I got assigned around the different areas is because that was part of the curriculum at General Motors. Okay. So then you accumulated all that information, that knowledge, and then you just moseyed on over to uh, CarCraft. When you started Far- CarCraft, it was what what year was that? 1966. And when did CarCraft? Uh, when did they come to uh, come to be? Come to be. They started in late. December of 64. Okay. And basically, they, um, see, Roy Lund, who was uh, uh, the, the forerunner of all this, he, were, he was the manager at Advanced Concepts at Ford Research, and they did that little sport, little Mustang sports car, the two-seater, mm-hmm. and that had a good hit, and then he just, he got tapped when they decided they are going to build a car to beat Ferrari. He was put in charge of that because of his experience with that car and other cars in England on other vehicles. And when he was in working in England on the GT40, they started working with Lola, and they had a real small shop, and he found out pretty quickly that he needed a bigger place to work to, to get the GT40s designed and built. And so he started another group called Ford Advanced Vehicles there in England, and they t- took over the engineering, and then they ended up being tasked to build all the production GT40s. So in 64, mid-64, when he came back, they got the GT40s all designed and built, and they're just in the process of building them. He and the rest of the guys, the Ford guys, came back from England and set up in Dearborn, and he knew he had to have to do the kind of... Because their task was between... Task number one was to beat Ferrari in the Le Mans race, but task number two was to develop new ideas and new concepts and future ideas for Ford Motor Company. And he knew to be able to do that kind of stuff, he needed an operation outside of Ford. 
and so he they went through purchasing. They ended up uh, getting a contract with Carcraft to provide uh, the engineering services for this, and it was a like a mini factory. It was a at Fort Supervision with the four engineers, but we had our own design section. We had a, they had fabricators, they had the um, mechanics, and they had a crib and a driver. So it was like a mini factory that could do practically anything, and they had very talented people that they accumulated to, to do all this kind of work. So did Carcraft exist before Roy Lund got involved in it, and it was just a little company out there in Brighton, or or did no, they no, did he help put uh, the deal together? No, it was created uh, when they he went to uh, you know you go through the corporations. He went to purchasing. Says I want to hire somebody to do that as a contracted facility okay. to be contracted to work just for Ford. And they had other uh, supposedly purchasing evaluated other companies in that area that type of work but uh nick hartman uh indirectly knew uh uh chuck mountain and ed hull because they were all uh, racers out of waterford hills and so they just nominated carcraft for one of these for this position because they thought they would uh work out and it did they they, they were awarded the contract by purchasing and that's how it got started Okay, so Carcraft already existed, and you said who the founder was, Ed Hartman. No, no, it didn't really oh, it didn't. exist. It was formed to, it was formed to meet this uh, contract need. Okay, I got. But Nick you. Hartman owned Carcraft. All right, all right. So now, what was one of the first projects that they were tasked with? Was it the GT40 program they were working no, on? No, no, that's an interesting. The GT40 was done in England by the same people under Roy Lunn. Oh. They did the GT40 in England with Ford Advanced Vehicles and Lola Cars. Okay. But when that job was, as I say, was un, un, being made, and the, they're just building the production cars, that was the end of his task. He came back to the United States because they had to keep looking down their road for future projects. And that's when he set up Carcraft. And one of their first big tasks was uh, they could see in the handwriting that the GT40, well, had potential and speed. It was, it was not. They didn't have enough power, so they said, "Well, we got to find another engine." And the only engine they had of that they figured that could even solve the problem right now that they had was the 427 engine they used in NASCAR racing. But that's a great big engine compared to the engine, the 289 size, 250. You know, the two or smaller engine that they had in the GT40. So they took the one of the. Uh, GT40s that would have been sent over from England, and they modified it to put the 427 engine in it. That's the kind of work they did. Just uh, they had a little design sections. They make drawings to how things are all going to fit, but then they're going to make them. But the real issue was it always had trouble with the GT40s with the, the transaxle. Didn't have the the durability and the performance. So now there's no. They don't have anything. The transaxle, which is a combination of the transmission and the rear axle, to get the power from the engine to the rear wheels that'll handle the 427 torque. So they invented their own or developed their own what they call a transaxle, became the, called the T44. Ford had come out in 64, uh, late 64, with a new four speed transmission for the Galaxy behind the 427 engine. So they took that transmission, combined it with a 
uh, heavy, you know, strong Ford differential, put the whole thing in a two or three piece magnesium case and made it into a new transaxle that would handle the engine and that, that's what made the 427 uh, Mark II GT4 a possible uh, product that it would work because it had they had to have an inch you know transmission in it that's what made it a success and so that's the kind of work they did is they developed this package but it, again they only put the engine in there as a con- as an experiment to see what what kind of power do they need there it was not intended to be a, a race car nor was it intended to be racing but when they started evaluating got a couple of local local race car driver to evaluate it and then they got Ken Miles to come out and evaluate it out at the Proving Grounds. He says, that's the car I want to race. And it was not the intention to race it until they, he said that. So then they went back to CarCraft and finished the second car and shipped them over to uh, Lamar practice. But I don't think they made practice. They, they, it was too late, which is in April. They shipped two, these two cars over there to Lamar for the race in 65. But the uh, one car never turned a wheel, never been driven by anybody, and they ended up uh, performing very well. They set new uh, lap and speed records, but they uh, then later in the ra- they put them in the race, but they had some other issues, and they did not finish the race, but they showed great potential. So that's the kind of thing that CarCraft became known for. You, you know, that's the kind of work they did, basically. And, okay, um... Mose, you were over there, um, and you were working on the GT40 program. The last show, you mentioned Alan Mann, and Alan Mann's been around for a long time, Alan Mann Racing, and they built two GT40s as well, but I believe they were aluminum-bodied cars. Were you involved in that? Do you have any uh, any knowledge about the, the Alan Mann GT40 Mark 1s? No, um, I wasn't involved with the cars at all, Robert. Oh. I, uh, I, I I envied Don's work, uh, <laughs> He had the whole car. I just had a little engine program oh. <laughs> back here in the experimental engine uh, in our Ford lab here. So, uh, but uh, I was aware of when the two cars went over there just because of a fan of, of racing. And uh, uh, when Ken Miles uh, entered the two cars out there and handled them in that uh, situation, and that's where we uh, punched the tape. So when uh, we uh, come back with the engines, and if they were decided that they were going to go ahead with the 427, we had a uh, a performance requirement of of the engine um, as it actually raced. So uh, anyway, that was our our uh, final test bed. Was that our engine had to complete uh, uh, the circuit of Le Mans. Uh, successfully 24 hours without a failure. And um, I just thought it was just a terrific idea. But uh, then the, the cars came back here, uh, and that's, Don was involved with that. So um, we went to work in the uh, Ford Experimental Lab with uh, improving the engine and, and deciding on what the final package would be for testing. Okay, so the story you told us last week about the uh, you know the the fishing filament you know on the O-ring yeah. gaskets and stuff. So that was for the 1966 race, right? The 66 cars. That's correct. 
Okay, what when they when sixty seven when they came out with that you know after unfortunately Miles was killed in the J in the J car which was basically a prelude to the Mark IV, um, and so the when the when the, and the Mark IV was a, basically a GT forty with a long wheelbase and a little bit longer body on it more aerodynamic and stuff I well, guess not quite it no? was all aluminum honeycomb this fits into the advanced concept. Back to what we were talking about. Okay. When they came back after uh, in sixty early sixty five, uh, the weight of the four twenty seven Mark II was still heavy because you had the, the four twenty seven engine and big brakes and all that stuff. And Ford requested that Carcraft and Roy Lunn had this kind. What can we do next down the road, future to you know be more uh, competitive? So they came up with this idea. They designed a car similar to the GT forty. But it used aluminum honeycomb for all the chassis, the whole chassis tub. Everything was steel. Okay. And a GT40 was aluminum, half-inch aluminum honeycomb, which is about 300 pounds lighter. And that's what became the J-Car. And unfortunately, it they had a, a very aerodynamic, swooping-looking body on it, but it was not... It was something the design center had designed, but they hadn't hadn't tested it, and it wasn't very aerodynamic. And so, when they'd bring out the, the J car to run against the Mark IIs in comparison, see, because you're not going to replace put using the Mark II 427 until the other car proves it's faster. And so, they were constantly being compared for about for five or six, seven, eight months, and the GT the the J car aluminum car didn't perform until they finally. Uh, actually, the, what really happened was in '67 uh, they were still running the uh, at Daytona, still running the G, the Mark IIs with the 427, and they all they all the, the transaxles all failed because they had a bad a bad part, and uh, they could also see Ferrari was there and they had their new one of their later model cars and they could also see that he was they were faster than they'd been before. So then they got the decision, decision after that to take the, the J car the, and work on it. And that's when they brought in, uh, they took uh, the one we call J4 and took the whole front end off of it and they started shaping, redoing the whole shape of the front body. Uh, Phil Remington and a couple of his guys and our guys and a couple of guys from Styling all worked on that. And they ended up making a whole new body for it, and uh, Ed had designed a different tail section on it. And they did all that in about two weeks, wow. and got it into the wind tunnel, and it was better than the Mark II aerodynamic as far as speed potential. And so then they went out and tested it uh, at Riverside, and it was four or five miles, several miles an hour faster, which was their goal. And that's when they decided to go ahead and make more cars of the that's when it became the mark four when they changed the body style shape of it and that's when they made the decision to go ahead and make four new four new uh mark fours as they were called for Le Mans of 67 so that's again the act the advanced concept the experimental part of it's what brought that about if you know what i'm okay let me ask you this now i Ran across a guy here not too long ago that used to work for um, TWA. And TWA yeah. in L.A. used to ship the cars from Carroll Shelby and fly them over right. to Le Mans. Okay, now I don't know if Ford had a contract with him or not. But what was interesting is I ran into this guy locally here, 
at a car club because he, he started talking about cars and then he brought up Shelby and they said, well, go talk to Robert because he's a Shelby guy. And he started showing me some pictures. Now, what was interesting is on the J car, he had actual photos of the J car on a, in a container for a platform being loaded onto the TWA freight yeah, plane right. on its way over to Le Mans. Now, apparently, I have other pictures. So how many different versions of the bread box looking J car did they make? Because they apparently, after Le Mans 66, they were testing the car. So it's supposed to no, it was there in 65 also. The bread box really was? The J yes, car was? Yeah, it, yeah, it oh. was there. That was as J1. Oh. If I recall it correctly, I would check it. It was there, but it, uh, it again, it didn't perform when they had the Mark, it running against the Mark IIs. So it was there in 65, I believe, or 66, but it didn't, it didn't get its legs till after they redid it in 60, early 67. The, the, the bread van version was bad aerodynamically, so therefore it never outperformed the Mark IIs. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the bread van, or, you know, that's what we kind of refer to it as, the Lola T-70 Mark III, um, yeah. that, the back end of that car, and Ferrari actually had something that looked like that, too. So if it was so aerodynamically poor, these cars actually, the Lola T-70 Mark III, I guess it was the Mark III B. I'm not sure which one it was. I can't remember now. But the, but they had that bread van looking thing that raced like 69, 68, 69, somewhere you around mean the Lola? The Lola, that was it, yeah. Oh, yeah, but that was a coupe, but it was a completely different style body. Okay. It was, and, and obviously they all learned uh, about aerodynamics. And so anything that was made later, they started using, uh, you know, the information from the wind tunnels. And so the. It was not a copy of the bread van by a long shot. Oh, okay. Well, it slightly resembled it. But anyway, okay, so the, um, uh, you know, because ta- we had Brian Redman on the show and Vic Alford a while back, and they were talking about the nine Porsche 917 and, you know, about oh, putting yeah. a little <laughs> spoiler on the back of it. So, yeah. and that little aerodynamic trip kept the back end of the 917 on the ground. So did you guys run into that? Did you guys? Exp- oh, yeah. Exp- no, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they went into that with the GT40. Okay. Back in 63, 64. Oh, yeah, they put a spot. Because the first two cars in 63 crashed at Le Mans because they had they didn't have enough downforce in the back. Uh-huh. And they so they started putting spoilers on the back of those back then. All right, on the early GT40, this is a story that I got. There was a gentleman by the name of Tweedy that used to work for Carroll Shelby. And uh, he was saying that when they got one of the early GT40s, the no, they were they knew that there was a, a a lift problem in the front. The front end was coming up, but that the the nose on the original car apparently was relatively long. So what they did is supposedly, as the story goes, is they cut it, took a section out of it, and shortened the nose yeah, a little. Yeah, they did. Yeah, right. Okay. In fact, you'll notice the '66 Le Mans Mark IIs have a much shorter nose on them. Yeah, that's probably what he was talking about. Okay, so did they, is, is Shelby the ones that kind of experimented that way first, or was that oh, done yeah, in car Yeah, they did all that. See, they. They turned the GT40 over to Shelby in uh, 60, late 64, uh, late 64, and they made a winner out of the in the next year at Daytona. Okay. Aerodynamic. Well, they went through a lot of stuff, of cooling and ducting and aerodynamics, and they did they did a whole lot of stuff that worked on the GT40. 
So they actually did more testing where CarCraft did more engineering. Would that be a fair statement? True. Yeah, yeah. CarCraft—that's that's basically it. Okay. Well, Shelby was the operational racers. Okay. We weren't racers per se. We were just designers and builders. Okay. But our guys would be you know, some some of. One of our guys would be there when they're doing their testing, too, so the knowledge is transmitted, if you know what I mean. Okay. Basically. Now, Holman and Moody, the two cars that, and, and, and as the story goes, as its history shows it, as, you know, when uh, McLaren's car came in, and what was funny, though, or I thought was kind of interesting, is because I was, and I won't mention any names, but, you know, the whole controversy over the Miles car uh, one of the stories that I got from a reliable source within the organization said that Miles was actually two laps ahead of the other two Ford cars, and the controversy to this day is still out there. But they, you know, they yeah. told Miles to slow down, obviously. But even in the, if he was two laps ahead of them and he slowed down, he still would, he still should have won, but he didn't. But so you guys were there. So as the story goes. Ford wanted a one-two finish, but he wanted the Ford cars to win. As a, or he actually wanted all three of them to cross the finish line apparently at the same time. I guess that was the plan, but it kind of didn't work out that way. But he he was he was more the the the, the scuttlebutt is is that he really wanted the Ford cars to win and not so much the Shelby car. Is there he, who who are you talking about? He Ford Henry Ford II the Deuce. Well, first of all, I wasn't there. I did. I was oh. hired. June of '66 after Lamar. Oh, okay, 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 Don. <laughs> but all I know, you know, you hear all these other stories, and Mose was, was there, I believe. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's hard to say. Uh, actually, as I understand it, as way it's been demoted, been, been told, they actually told uh, for, uh, the, the Lamar people told them, no, you can't do that. If you do it, try and because they were talking to the officials before they. While the race was going on, as I understand it, that you can't do that because uh, the guy that started farther back, it, 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 it's not a time race; it's a distance race. Right. And so the, the guy that started farther back will win if you try and do a, a, a you know, a three-way tie at the finish line. And if you don't have a three-way tie at the finish, you know, the picture they wanted them straight, you know, all tied together. Well, they proved they told them that it won't work. Oh. But they went ahead and did it anyway, as, as I understand it, just to, because they had already told the drivers what to do, and they they'd have to call them in and change the orders. And so yeah, it effectively they screwed Miles. But that's another. Yeah. Okay, well no that 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 makes sense too. That makes it well. So so Mose, you were there. So what did you see? Well, uh, actually, uh, it, it looked like to me that Leo Bibi was the one that come up with a marketing plan of three across the finish line at the same time. Uh-huh. And, it, and at that point, when they uh, confirmed that that's what they wanted to do, Ken Miles was leading by 32 miles ahead of the, the second-place car. So they slowed him down, and they got everybody shaped up to come back uh, across the line. And uh, that's when uh, the officials stepped up and... Uh, Said that that uh, that 31 miles didn't mean much at all. It was who uh, come across the line and traveled the farthest. So when they equalized the cars to come across together, that had shortened up the miles from 10 miles, and uh, and it was uh, the number four car that uh, 
started earlier, or I should say, uh, uh, farther back, is was deemed the winner. It was it was quite a shock to everybody because uh, first of all, they didn't really understand why they wanted to come across the. Uh, um, three at a time, but as a marketing boy, I guess Mr. Beebe thought that was the way to do it. Mr. Ford agreed, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Let me ask you this: So, when you were there, and 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 what was the excitement like? I mean, what was what was brewing in the in the Ford camp at the time? I mean, was was uh, well the. The, the excitement was so great that you didn't think about eating meals, eating food, or sleeping. Uh, so, <laughs> Jill, you were right there for the whole 24 hours plus uh, whatever it took to prepare for the race. But it was it was terribly exciting. It was terribly exciting for me. Um, saddened later after we found out that uh, uh, some of our uh, some of us had a favorite driver out there that. Should have won the race because uh, that st- that stole a triple crown away from him for the for the year, you know, and uh, that that sort of took uh, the excitement off a little bit. But uh, it was done. It was done. Yeah. When you were um, over there, did you have any involvement with Alan Mann at all? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Not at all. In fact, uh, really did uh, haven't. Uh, too much to do with the car people other than when we would come in from practice and they would uh, send word down to me to come over and perform whatever magic I did with the engines, uh, you know, check chiming valve lash and, and uh, linkage uh, clearances and things of that nature. So um, Shelby's gang um uh, Shelby's gang was uh, pretty fussy about who touched the cars. So, but I was uh, I was uh, welcome to come down and, and and bust the engine after each practice. Basically, take its temperature and put it to bed for the next day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, a question I have now. So, when they so they win sixty six. Now we got the Mark Four in sixty seven. Was there lessons learned from the engine standpoint, from your perspective? Did anything change with the 67 production car or uh, race cars? Did you do any changes to the 427 motor? You mean to race in the 67 race? Yeah. In other words, did you? Was there any differences between the engine? Uh, very, very little. Uh, there was some materials that was uh, uh, became the. Uh, Showing wear and fatigue. Uh, so the materials of certain parts inside the engine, for example, uh, the cam thrust, camshaft thrust plate was uh, badly worn and ended up looking cracked. Uh, but didn't it didn't fail? <laughs> but so the next year we had uh, uh, we had camshaft thrust plate made out of tool steel and, and polished uh, to reduce the friction and yet take the load. Um, you, you see, it was a real critical part, and it's a simple part. It was just a flat plate with a big hole for uh, uh, the cam post and two little holes for five sixteenths place screws, place bolts. But uh, you have to consider uh, uh, on the downshift when when the car now starts driving the engine, uh, all those forces reverse. So now we get we get the uh, the, 
the camshaft wanted to jump forward instead of backwards uh, mm. because of the drag uh, caused by the oil pump, high-pressure oil pump. Interesting, interesting. Did the uh, did did so the basic components are the same. What kind of RPMs were they turning in that car? Uh, well, <laughs> we asked for sixty seven hundred, but I know there were some seven thousands. <laughs> okay, so what would you say compared to a NASCAR engine? What were the differences in the motor, the actual physical motor, com- from a NASCAR motor to let's say these long distance? Uh, uh, motors that were running in the Le Mans cars. Well, the 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 biggest uh, difference was uh, the dry sump oil pan. Okay. And uh, in NASCAR at that time, they were running deep sumps with uh, trapdoor compartments and things like that. NASCAR would would never allow uh, a dry sump engine at that time, and uh, in uh, in an attempt to keep the engine lesser expensive, so the poor guy could keep up and. And, and race in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Okay, but virtually the engine itself, as far as the cylinder heads, intake, well, intakes were different, obviously, but, I mean, the, the blocks and cranks and stuff like that were pretty much the same. Pretty much the same, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the engine was detuned from the NASCAR level of, of performance, uh, and we explained that last week about uh, buying endurance and durability by... Uh, uh, making uh, slowing the engine up a little bit and uh, taking the strain off of it, hoping to buy the full 24 hours without incident. So realistically, realistically, if if one of the drivers had really pushed it, what could have you turned that engine and still be okay? I mean, could they have gone 7,500 RPMs? Oh, I, I feel they'd have done 75 okay. Uh, I wouldn't... Uh, you see, the connecting rods are pretty heavy components in that thing, and and they may have, they may have. I I know the drag racers were hitting nine thousand with them, but uh, that's just for a couple seconds. That's true. All right, so let me here's here's the other myth. They always use the term. Well, my four twenty seven's got cap screw Le Mans rods. Now, where did where did that term come from? Well, uh, the Le Mans rods did have a cap screw. It had a bolt in it. Okay. Uh, we did not have studs in the rods, and then you put nuts on them on, on, to hold the cap down. Okay. So uh, the other thing was about the cap screw, you had more idea of what kind of torque uh, you were putting on that, and... Uh, it was a pretty unique operation. Each bolt had a center drilled in the threaded end and in the in the uh, socket head end. And we put the bolts in not to a specific torque, but to a specific pre-stretch. And oh. uh, through testing in fasteners, we learned that we could uh, get the clamping load we wanted and make it consistent across the whole engine. By using that method, so it was quite a job to uh, finish uh, torquing up uh, the connecting rods. We had special micrometers made that would uh, settle into those two drill points at each end of the the, the bolt, and um, it was a it was a lengthy deal. And you wanted to make sure that you started it way before lunch because if you didn't, you were going to work <laughs> through lunch. <laughs> Don, you were going to say something. 
No, I was just snickering at his comment about <laughs> lunch. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this, Don. The, what about the I was I always heard that the gearbox that was used in the GT40s was a ZF gearbox. Is there truth to that? Oh yeah, they started with Kaliti. That was the only thing they had oh, at the okay. time in '63, and it was a terrible gearbox. But that's all they had. And they '64, and then Ford made about twenty some improvements in it, but they still had trouble. And about half the cars that didn't finish was because of transmission trouble. But then, even so, they had a little bit of trouble with the ZF. But they didn't get the ZFs until late '64. They even had a little bit of trouble. Uh, with the ZF, but it was stronger overall, and that's what enabled them to keep going. And the car that won in '65, you know, the, uh, had a, had a ZF in it, and by then it was uh, well proven. But the ZF could not handle the 427. That's why we yeah. went to and to do yeah. the T, what they call the T44 Carcraft gearbox. Okay, so yeah, the, to the I, go ahead, go ahead, Mose. I'm sorry, I have a question for Don. Wasn't uh, that the big contribution of Ed Hall was uh, the transactional design? Well, he he helped lay it out along with Bob Nexted. Yeah, they actually okay. invented it and designed it, and made the made the first one, I believe. Uh, and then Carcraft supplied all the parts, but Transmission Division insisted on building the transmissions because it was a transmission part. You know, Carcraft oh, I didn't, didn't build them. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And supplied the parts, but transmission insisted that they build them, so that's how it was handled. So the gearbox, the ZF, was used on the small block cars, but then when it got to the 427, that was a purpose-built in-house transaxle. Okay. Right. All right, next time I see... The only disadvantage was it was heavy. It was heavy? Yeah, because it had the the guts out of a regular four-speed transmission plus a, a Ford differential, and... One of the things when you say we're always looking down the road, you know, we got I got letters and things that they were talking about that they, uh, well, what are we going to do uh, in, for the future? And one of the things was they're going to come up with a lighter weight transaxle, but they never did it. But that was one of the goals because it's, it was very heavy. Okay. All right, Don, I got to ask you this. Uh, we got to talk about the Holy Grail of Mustangs, the Boss 429. What can you tell us about Carcraft and the Boss 429? Now, the story that you t- we were talking about the other day was actually real interesting because I was asking you about the S motor and the T motor. So we know that the car was, the first Boss 9 was built in 69, January of 69, kind of behind schedule in a way. And they had to come up with 500 cars. So yeah. b- built before they could run that motor in NASCAR. So right. take it from there. Well, as I said, uh, I wasn't aware, you know, the the engine comes to, uh, when you're, I was resident engineer at the Brighton plant, so the engines came to us in a, you know, all complete. So we didn't really get involved in that aspect of it all, uh, other than, the the only thing you could tell us, you had the little S or T designator on that little piece of paper on on the engine, I forget where it was on the distributor, it was on something. Yeah. We never got involved in that per se uh, that was as a running change, as I said before, because they were, they had, they tried to thrift and improve the engines as, as after they made their, you know, they were making them all on a panic basis to get, get the uh, bats, get some cars and engines built, and so the, then they, you know, you de- design a product and you get it working, well then you know ways you can improve it if you have, the, so then you, the engine engine engineers that they go back through. 
and they can make some improvements on the on the engines while they're still building them, if you know what I mean. The, mm-hmm. Say the S versions, they, they'd be working and making improvements for the T, and then they'd start making T engines. But all the time, they're still making engines because they need them for the cars. Okay. Mose, were you ever involved in any of the Boss 429 motor development? Uh, yeah, I was uh, just going to mention to Don that uh, uh, Bill Davison and I uh, had a small engine, uh, experimental engine inspection and build uh, operation over in a car craft building, and it was under the, the, uh, the controls of uh, Dick Ronzi. And that's where we were doing uh, the assemblies uh, according to what the engineers were specifying at that time and shipping the engines to Dynamometer. But that was uh, that was in the early days so that the engine could uh, be uh, certified and, and uh, released for production. So... The actual Boss 429 engine. How did it come up? How did how did it come to inception? I mean, how did it? How, engine division. Engine division. Yeah, engine yeah. division designed and built it, and because uh, they're well, they're trying to compete with a Chrysler Hemi. That's the story. Okay. Chrysler was beaten. Well, actually, they didn't beat it, but the the potential was there. The Chrysler cars had speed, but I was just checking my note. We Ford won in 67 and 68 uh, championships, I think it was. But they could see the handwriting on the wall. And so then Ford engine division came up with the their version. Of, you know, it was a semi-hemi. It was a, uh, that's what they called it. The, mm-hmm. Their competitor for the, for the Chrysler Hemi engine. And they came up with that thing. And that's what caused the whole <laughs> Boss 429 meeting. Because the, the plan was... Uh, to put 50 of them in Mustangs and 450 of them in Galaxies. And they went to the meeting with Knutson. Uh, I wasn't in on it. The other guys, Mason and, and Chuck Mountain were in on it. And he says, wait a minute here. You got to, why don't we make the, with this engine, make a super Mustang out of this thing and, and put all these engines in the Mustang and forget the Galaxy. And he says, do you think you can do it? And they said, well, I think we probably can't. So they, they, that was the assignment they gave uh, Carcraft. Go back and come back in three weeks and show me a prototype, and that's what they did. The first prototype was done in three weeks, along with the first Boss 302 concept vehicle, because part two of the meeting was they also had a, a Z28 Camaro that I borrowed from Chevrolet <laughs> for the meeting, because uh, Chevrolet was kicking their butt in the Trans Am with the, with the, with the Z28, Z28 Camaro. And the uh, same time, the engine guys were working on a, a 302 sedan HL engine. And they said, and part two of the question was, well, we'd like to build another car, a special car for this engine too, uh, to, to compete with the Chevy Z8, uh, Z28. And by, Newton says, do that too. But they gave the assignment to build the cars, uh, the Boss 429, to Carcraft because they needed them, as I said, to get the cars homologated for NASCAR. And the, the, the Boss 429 was too big a project. They couldn't run it down the assembly line because of the wheels and tires and all that other stuff. They, but they didn't want to disrupt the Mustang line anyway to, to build all these cars. So they told uh, Carcraft, you do it. But they turned over the Boss 302 production program to Ford, but there was no critical timing on that, on that like there was the Boss 429. So then they gave, Carcraft went out and they found this plant out in Brighton 
and Fran Hernandez and Vin Tinsler put it together, and they started building cars. And that's how that got going out there. Hey, gentlemen, we are up against the clock, but I'll tell you what. I'm having too much fun doing this. Here's what I want to do. I want you guys both to come back next week, because we didn't even get into the Tunnel Port 302 and some of the other stuff, the camera motors and stuff like that. So how about we come back next week and we do Part 3? You guys game for that? Yeah, we can do that. Okay, super. <laughs> I want to thank my special guests this evening, Moe Nolan and Don Eichstadt, you know, super guys with Ford and CarCraft. And, uh, hey, guys, thank you a lot, and uh, we'll have you guys on next week. We'll do Part 3. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Hey, in the meantime, I want all my listeners uh, to don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night between eight and no, between seven and eight p.m. on the TED Talk Radio Network. Big shout out to my buddy uh, Ken Abner. Kenny's telling me that they're opening up the old Burger King Car Show here uh, pretty soon on 110th Avenue. I'm gonna find out when that is. I'll let you go. One thirty, okay? The so that's the end of the month. Also. The Vintage Truck Club is having their car show, their truck show, in Leesburg the weekend of the 4th, 5th, and 6th. So check out the Vintage Truck Club of Florida. I'll see you guys there. Go to my Facebook page. You'll see me driving a 1937 Mac AC dump truck. Wicked cool truck. I think that's my next vehicle. I'm not sure about that. But in the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Big shout out to all my friends that tune in here every week. Hi to everybody. And, uh, hey, for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports, don't forget to check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars here every Tuesday night. And uh, follow us on Facebook. And uh, so what else we do? Oh, yeah, LinkedIn and all the other good stuff. In the meantime, everybody, I want to see you at the car shows. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.